0: In this episode, I interviewed Ben Kingston-Hughes. Where do I start? Mind-blowing. Ben starts off by telling us how he got into what he's doing now, teaching adults why play is so important. He veers off to tell a funny story about dressing up in a superhero costume and I couldn't stop giggling. And then he boggles my mind with neuroscience and how he can change the genes of children we interact with And their future grandchildren. Wow. I'll leave it there because you need to listen to this for yourself. Thank you so much for joining me on the Teachers Podcast today. Uh, You're welcome. Um, So we are at the Brilliant Boys Leading Learning Event in Leeds. Um, So you have done your keynote already. Yeah. And... um, couple of workshops as well and when I spoke to you on the phone I was just I was blown away by some of the things that you were talking about I'm going to talk about neuroscience (laughs) brains yeah um I just think it's really powerful things that everyone everyone should know about yeah um so thank you so much for giving up your time and and educating us all on that
1: uh, well, no, it's what I do. So um, yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely amazing. Um so the first thing I always like everyone to do is give me a backstory of how they got to where they are, just so that everyone knows why on earth they should listen to Ben.
1: Yeah, so I remember on the phone saying how controversial this is, um, but it's, I, this
0: is not controversial at all. Well,
1: um, I've had an interesting career. Um, I was recently diagnosed with ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, not a medical uh, diagnosis, but two clinical psychologists that I've been working with Mm -hmm. to develop training on ADHD. And they thought it would be interesting to put me through the diagnosis process as it would occur for a child. And turns out I hit every single criteria. Um, So when I have talked to family and friends, not one person has been surprised in the slightest, which was a shock, turns out everybody knew. Um, But it's explained my rather turbulent past, shall we say, especially my education. Mm So uh, to cut a long story short, I was uh, innately intelligent enough to get through primary school, absolutely fine. I was fine doing O-levels, mm-hmm. got all Cs, but I got through them all with very little work. And then found with A-levels, you actually have to focus and you actually have to concentrate. And that's when things started to go a little bit wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but I managed to scrape the A-levels I needed just. And I wanted to be a teacher. That was mm-hmm. my, my dream. Uh, my mum was a teacher, an absolutely wonderful history teacher, and uh, she made everything exciting and interesting. And so I decided that I'm going to go to teach training college mm-hmm. and I, um, I went to uh, Liverpool to teach training college and uh, it was horrible. It was, um, it was very, very structured. Um, I was doing biology and um, I was told I could do biology for one year and I was going to keep drama going as mm-hmm. my major. And then they changed the rules. So I was going to be stuck with biology. So uh, as a, a kind of rebellion, I decided, uh, well, not to do any work, basically. Mm-hmm. And I just, just couldn't focus. I wasn't handing stuff in. I was behind and eventually got thrown out. So uh, my career as a teacher ended in uh, 1991 mm-hmm. um, and I vowed never to teach ever again. <laughs> so uh, here I am uh, working with yes. teachers. Um, so what happened was I'd, I was kicked out of university. I'd, I'd got uh, no money, I'd got no, nowhere to live. Um, I'd let myself down, my parents down, you know, the same old story. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I needed to find something to do. Yeah. So I was on the dole for a bit, didn't sit well with me. Um, and I ended up um, signing up for a degree in English. Mm-hmm. I'd never done English before in my life, always been into science subjects, because my dad was. Yeah. So I started doing an English degree and found it was amazing, because yeah. I could choose what I wanted to learn, I could pick the books I wanted to study, I could apply how I wanted to l- look at them, and I started really thriving. I started getting good marks for the first time, probably since primary school. Yeah. I actually started getting A's on bits of work. I'd not had an A since I was always a could do better. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was always said of me that, oh, he's got such potential, and I just got so sick of that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but of course, I ran out of money, so mm-hmm. um, I went to an inner city play project. And this, they're all over the country, but in Leicester there are nine of these play projects and they serve the most deprived areas, children aged two all the way up to 16. And these are areas that are, you know, high levels of unemployment, uh, high levels of antisocial behaviour. And we just put on play provision for children just to give them somewhere to go. And I, I turned up in a suit to the interview, which is not the thing you do to an inner city project. Um, I don't know what it was about me, but the manager there obviously saw something in me and employed me for six weeks. Mm -hmm. And 13 years later, I was still there as a deputy manager and um, yeah, I'd I'd found my career and I went through a a degree. I then went on to do an MA. Mm -hmm. But I I kept thinking when I get my degree, I'll get a proper job. But when I get my MA, I'll get a proper job. But after spending a week with these children um, of all ages, I spent a week dressed up as a superhero one of the most amazing weeks ever. I saw so many, I saw selectively mute children speak for the first time because yeah. they felt confident. I saw the behaviour of children that had been you know, really quite challenging behaviour, but for, for that brief moment, they were a super version of themselves. Yeah. Um, there was one lad called Daniel who um, he used to torment younger children. That was his thing because yeah. he didn't have a particularly good life himself. Yeah. His parents were not particularly supportive. So his way of getting power, obviously, if was a seven-year-old yeah. doing a piece of drawing, he'd rip the drawing up or he'd pull their chair out. Yeah. And he, he made a, com, a costume, pretty much, to take the mickey out of my costume. Because we told the young, younger children that, oh, Ben's off sick. Don't worry, we've got a superhero to take his place. Yeah. And so, um, <laughs> but, you know, so I remember making get well cards with the four-year-olds, making get well cards for me, with me helping, because yeah. they were quite happily believing there was a superhero. But even the seven-year-olds would be saying, oh, you look a bit like Ben. And yeah. I'd be like, yes, but I'm more handsome than Ben. And they go, oh, yeah. So Daniel came out making a suit, going, oh, I've made one too, being quite cheeky with it, and uh, went up to the first seven-year-old and went, can I help you with that? And we because were like, gobsmacked. Yeah. And for the next, it was about four days, he kept this up, of, instead of undermining stuff, because Daniel would have would have done that, but Captain Amazing yeah. didn't. And yeah. Captain Amazing started helping children. And it was the most incredible turnabout for him. And he was never yeah. gonna have perfect behavior. and We know that's not where he was from. Yeah. but. But actually, that was the first time he realized there was a positive way to express himself. And he used to pass messages from himself to himself. So he'd say to one child, oh, have you seen Daniel? And this kid would go, um, oh, no, you've just missed him. And he'd go, oh, what? tell him this. And then he'd come back dressed as Daniel. And the kid would go, oh, Captain Amazing says this. And he thought that was hilarious that he could, even though all the kids knew it was him, even though it was obvious, it was was just a wonderful week. And I thought to myself that week, I thought, you know what, this is my proper job. Yeah. I'm not ever going to stop working with children. And so that's what we do to this day. We work with children. That's
0: so, amazing. I feel like I'd love to have seen that. <laughs> yeah. Everything passing notes for himself. Yeah. I don't think I'd have had the energy to get changed so many times.
1: <laughs> well, it was a very rubbish costume, actually, because we we had limited resources. So a lot of the costumes yeah. were made out of bin liners. Right. So it was just to shove a bin liner on and put a mask on. It was really simple yeah. stuff. My costume was more intricate because I spent a long time on my costume. Um, I became Ribena Man. Um, <laughs> And that was quite an interesting, because I, I, I kept hold of the costume because yeah. um, you don't throw away a costume. And I kept no. it in the loft just as a memento, that, that really kind of real moment in my life. And uh, I was doing one of the early adoption activity days, which is where we try and find home, forever families for children who've yeah. been passed over for adoption. And they're wonderful events. They're the most successful things ever mm. for finding children. that have already tried every other method and we're yeah. finding homes for them. And one of the early ones was superhero themed. So I thought, yeah, do you know what? It's time. It's time for Ribena Man to ride again. So I rushed off to this event. I hadn't tried the costume on in years, but I thought, what could possibly go wrong? Got to the event and um, I, did a, I did the first bit of working with the children. So we're making dens, we made magic potions with them. And these wonderful moments of just positive interaction between adopters and children. And then half an hour before the end, I ran to the toilets because I thought it'd be a big surprise for them yeah, yeah, to yeah. turn up as Ribena Man. So I launched myself out um, into the toilets, ran there, got, um, sorry, I'll re-say that. So I ran to the toilets, got myself changed, looked at myself in the mirror. And years ago in the nineteen nineties, I'd had that epiphany about what I wanted to do. I kind of had another moment of, of clarity as I looked at myself in the mirror, like like this old guy looking back at me. I looked awful. I've never seen anyone looking so haggard. Everything's all the costumes all much more wrinkly now in different places. The yeah, tights yeah. have got holes in where my hairy legs are sticky, it's all sticking out the back. <laughs> Um, I've got my glasses on top of my mask, which doesn't look good. I've got a scraggly grey beard. I'll be honest, I look like I should be on some kind of register. And I've got two, 200 adults, children and film crew, documentary team waiting for me to come out as Ribena Man. And I look like some real old weirdo. It was horrendous. And I, but I no, the worst thing is that the, the top I'd got, it was a, a pink skin tight top I'd stolen from an ex-girlfriend in 1990 something. And... Like in those days, I weighed about about eight and a half stone. Whereas I'm not heavy now, but I only I weigh ten stone, so it's not pulling down. It's become a crop top. I've got my hairy belly sticking out, which is like hairy muffin top. I think is the current phrase. And honestly, I've got to be on telly. I thought there's no way, and I I I, I bottled it at that moment. I took the mask off. I thought there's no way. My first time. This is my first time on telly. We've been on a few times since then, but that was my first time on telly. Thought not a chance. And it was only as I took the mask off, I just, it suddenly hit me. That I've just worked with children who've been through more in their short lives than I can even imagine, the trauma that some of them have been through. Yeah. And I'd forgotten, because once you get playing, they were just like every other child. And we'd made a Batmobile out of cardboard that actually moved. We'd made all sorts... So it was really hard to do actually, and I ne- I'm never quite as confident as I may come across because I obviously I talk in front of large groups of people. But I had to put the mask back on and straighten my shoulders and stride out going hello, <coughs> hello, my name's Robin let's play, and I looked awful. And so my first time on Channel Four was um, luckily. In soft focus because it's vulnerable children, yeah. and right at the beginning of the first show, there's me in slow motion just running really sort of, sort of lazily across the screen, in slow motion, dressed in purple tights with this purple top with my belly sticking out. So, um, yeah, that's, that's
0: uh, amazing. I don't ask you any more questions because I'm just—I feel like I'm just going to
1: laugh so much. No, I do. Well, I'll try not to. Um, yeah. No, please do. <laughs> I need this
0: in my yeah. life. Yeah. Um, um, wow. Oh, thank you. That's, that's all right. That's amazing. Well,
1: I do show the picture now at conferences. Um, so it's not on today's conference, but actually it's quite nice because I've got a picture of me back in 1994 or whenever it was as the young Ribena man, I've actually still got that picture. And I've got the picture of me, it was two years ago, no no, about three years ago of me, this, this Ribena <laughs> man. And so my my message to people working with children is, look, if I can be on national television looking like this, and I put it on and said, all of you can be the superheroes, your children deserve you to be. Yeah, and it's yeah. actually been a really useful sort of teaching moment and it's yeah. a nice ending to conferences. So yeah. Um, yeah that's amazing. slightly embarrassing as well.
0: Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um can we google that photo then? You can't because oh, oh, I don't it. actually
1: there might be an example of it on my website but I, I do have people do have it cuz of presentations with it uh, on but I can certainly yeah. share the photo with yeah, you.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking let's let's all have a look at that photo. Yeah. Um okay so neuroscience. Yes. You know a lot about neuroscience. What is it?
1: Well, you say I know a lot about neuroscience but um, I think this is because of the ADHD or or possibly just because of my particular mindset. But I started learning about neuroscience about four years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, it was eye-opening because it's obviously it's fascinating, mm-hmm. but the bits I know are the bits that directly apply to the children that I work with. Yeah. And it has become the, the fundamental pedagogy of my whole organisation. So to me, neuroscience is not just about facts and figures, it's, it's ammunition, mm-hmm. that's what I use it for. So when I talk to parents, and, and we do a lot of parent training, or when I talk to head teachers, obviously training in schools, Talking about children's well-being and children's mental health can sometimes sound a bit nebulous. And I think we're, we are struggling at this at the moment, I think in this country, to really recognise the mental health issues that children are finding. And not, not, just, are having, not just children and adults as well. We don't talk about it. It's mm-hmm. still a taboo subject. Um, there's been a lot of improvements. Um, a lot of the IAPTs that you get around the country to help people self-refer. They're, they're a fantastic idea and we help you know, a lot of settings to recognise that. But we are at crisis point. You know, we've, we've got, in early years in particular, our workforce is going through one of the worst periods in terms of its mental health ever. And there was a study by the Early Years Alliance that, that showed that our children are struggling. But some people don't get that. Yeah. It, there's this attitude, and it's it's a horrible one, but it's about that, oh, well, they, they just need to toughen up as if it's not really a thing. They just, the amount of times when I was a kid, it was like people were saying, like, oh, pull your socks up and stuff like that. Whereas we know that there's no evidence at all to support that approach. That actually being mean to children does not prepare them for bad experiences. It's totally opposite. Yeah. With the neuroscience, you can actually show people and demonstrate that there are physical changes in the brain. And actually we know that anger, anxiety, stress, fear, those negative emotions cause physical damage to the brain. and that is. A, i was going to say it's a wonderful thing i don't mean for the children obviously it's a horrific thing but it's a wonderful thing for educators because now yeah because now when somebody's saying oh they just need to toughen up they know what they need to do is heal and it's not just emotionally heal although of course that's a massive part it's physically heal the damage of their brain so that's why i use neuroscience um i am a keen follower of a neuroscientist called yak pangsep um whose nickname is the rat tickler which i always find quite a fascinating a Fascinating thing um, because he worked out that rats can laugh if you tickle them, and you can hear them All on right. an ultrasonic microphone and they actually giggle. It's, it comes up on pub quizzes actually. It's, it's what's I the a name another mammal that can laugh? And it's rats. And the reason we know that is Yak tickled them, It's a great job, isn't it? Yeah, how do you get what funding panel do you go to and go, Oh, I want to tickle rats, give me the money, <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> but he's, um, he's he died recently, I believe, but he's uh, proposed a whole a series of positive pro-social emotional systems built into the brain. Um, But we're not talking upper brain here. We're talking the more primitive parts of the brain, so your limbic system in particular. And your limbic system, he's looking at three positive pro-social systems and then also the negative stuff like anger, fear, and anxiety. And the way it seems to pan out, certainly from observing children, is that the positive stuff, play, nurturing, and curiosity, are the polar opposites of anger, fear, and anxiety. And in every case, the more we can get children to experience um, nurturing, Which is that wonderful face-to-face helping a child feel warm and welcome and loved, which should happen in every educational establishment at any age of child, not just early years. And then that lovely curiosity, that finding out about the world, um, how you want to, not a grown-up speaking to you and you having to listen, not a screen giving you passive information, but Mm. but everything about curiosity is is instinctive and natural. Like, you know, a two-year-old walks past a wall, they'll stroke the wall. They can't help themselves.
0: So thinking about that when you said that,
1: yeah. What have I done? It's me. Yeah. Okay. God, right, just unprofessional. Say it, say I don't know. No? Just say <laughs> the, oh, I'll best check it. Do you want me to go back from no, somewhere?
0: No, sorry,
1: one sorry. Yeah, don't make go me right? go back to the Robinman story because I wasn't expecting sorry, to no. tell that story. <laughs> Honestly, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah.
0: Brilliant. Right. Okay. So where so were we? Just say curiosity. Uh, like, a two- like a two-year-old. Oh yeah. So
1: imagine, um, you know, what does a, a, a two-year-old uh, instinctively do whenever they walk past a fence? They can't help themselves, they'll stroke the fence because it's inaccurate. It's not a, oh, I wonder what that fence feels like. Will it be rough? Will it be smooth? I don't know. It is an instinct in the brain and it's a fantastic part of the brain because it rewards children with positive hormones um, there's, there's a whole list of chemicals, but one of them, I believe, is benzodiazepines, which have got a um, street value. You can actually sell those. They're, they're prescribed yeah. for, as an anti-anxiety medication. Uh, Americans use them as flight anxiety medication. And oh. this is produced naturally when children play.
0: Just for carrying out that desire. And
1: naturally when children fi- find out about their world, which is what you want every lesson for every child to be it like, is. isn't it?
0: And it's funny because when you were saying that, I was thinking about... Walking on or on the wall, yeah, you know? yeah, oh, yeah. Um, So I think about my three year old now, and she always wants to walk on the walls, or and you know, I think it took me a long time to grow out of that. Yeah, I, I remember wanting to walk on the cracks, wanting to yeah, walk yeah. Not on the cracks, yeah, wanting to walk on yeah. the walls, and and I remember thinking I'm too old to walk on the walls, but yeah. but I can't now. <laughs> no,
1: you're never too old to walk on walls, except <laughs> yeah. I can't because I've got bad knees. Um, no, but this is this is fascinating because this is where the instinct to play comes from. This is why it's it's undervalued at our peril because your desire to walk on a wall is not conscious. It's not you going, well, I wonder what it's going to be like to be higher up.
0: Mm. What your
1: body is doing, your brain body is trying to do is trying to ensure that you survive as an adult. And Mm -hmm. to do that, it actually needs to test you a little bit. So your instinct to just go, well, walking flat's not doing anything. I'm going to climb a wall. That is activating all of those things like climbing, like balance, all those physical things. But also because it's a bit scary, you're activating the very systems that you will need many years later on when you are in real danger Mm -hmm. and you practice as a child. And that is why children want to jump off stuff. It's why children will jump off one step, jump off another. It's why they walk on beams. It's why they pretend there's a crocodile in in the cracks because their body is instinctively activating and practicing with the very biochemical system they're going to need when there's a real threat in later life. And the more we overprotect children, the more the danger is we take that ability away from them, which is why you climb wars, um, and yeah. yeah, we all do it
0: yeah, yeah. and I, I find that so <coughs> fascinating as well because um I mean I, I don't know where I heard it but um you know say if there was a terrible incident that happened say say it was um, a shopping center and, and something bad was happening yeah um apparently those people who say go to the shopping center and already think in the mind if that happened then this is how I would escape, and this yeah. is how I would save yeah. the people I am with, they're more likely to survive. Yeah. And I do yeah. think, now I've got children, I find myself, not all the time, but sometimes thinking, oh, if there was an issue here, what, how, would, I, yeah. what, what, what yeah. would I do? And I think, yeah, what you're doing is just practising in your mind yeah. so yeah. that you can be successful yeah. in the event of yeah. risk.
1: Yeah, so as an adult, that's like, like me, when I go to a hotel, I always check where the fire exits are. But for a child, it's much more instinctive than that. It is without them ever thinking... They're doing the very things that are going to condition their body, their reflexes, their uh, immune system, their cardiovascular system to be as healthy as they can. And that includes their ability to assess danger. So children will constantly push themselves. And it's different for every child. So some children don't need to do much to activate that system. Some children need to to climb quite high, you know, stuff that would make an adult go, but they're doing it because, you know. One thing that that we know is that um, your responses to fear, you know, fight, flight or freeze, we have these responses. And if you practice with things like, what time is it, Mr. Wolf, or the jumping off stuff, the yeah. things that activate that system, you're more likely to default to the correct response for the correct situation. So, for instance, if you know if there's a car coming towards a child, what you want in that moment of panic, you want them to leap out of the way,
0: yeah.
1: which is using flight.
0: Yeah,
1: And they've been conditioned to know how to do that because of the play they've experienced. But if you haven't had that and you default to freeze, that's potentially life-threatening. Because so these, it, yeah. Because
0: they've run away when the wolf's coming to get them. Yeah. That's an amazing. So, so what,
1: you're, what you're saying, you know, that by letting your children climb on walls and jumping off, you're potentially saving their life later on in their life. And people never realise that. They're trying for short-term health and safety gains, what we're doing is overprotecting children. And health and safety executive are saying that overprotecting children is bad for their development. Yeah. But even um, uh, safeguarding training. On safeguarding training, overprotecting children is actually being included as an example of emotional abuse. Because it's that bad for children. And we do it habitually in our society. Um, so anyway, so that's a total aside. Oh, I'll tell you another interesting So It's, it's so interesting, uh, though.
0: I find it so interesting. <laughs> I, th- I think now everything that, that we talk about on the podcast is so interesting for me, not not only as um, somebody in education, but as a parent.
1: Yeah, I do find that because I do a lot of parent training. Um, yeah. And it's not, it's not called parent training. The last thing we want to do is make parents feel feel guilty or bad or whatever. And I never come across as the perfect parent because... Ironically, I'm very good with other people's children. I'm, I'm less good with my own. And I think a lot of educators the are the same. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we actually, you know, it's just about getting parents to just turn the telly off a little bit, play more, facilitate more, take the kids to the park more, take them through the woods more. It's about
0: just having extra knowledge and skills, yeah. isn't it, to, yeah. to, to, to deal with... Yeah. life.
1: Yeah but again the neuroscience is very useful for that because, because parents once again are more likely to listen when you tell them you know that that there can actually be brain deterioration from lack of play and there can all those be these links to, to yeah. neuroscience they actually they're more likely to take it on board. Yeah, um, I've just got one interesting thing for you I've only just thought yeah. about this um, so I was teaching this this morning but if Children learn to walk. That's, that's a really important thing because walking is an essential method of transport. Yeah. So we get that and it's very efficient. You don't use much energy. You can walk for miles and miles. But then, of course, that's not quite enough. So in terms of our evolutionary survival, we need fast movement so children learn to run. Yeah. And those, obviously there's the in-between stage, which is children learn to jog. Yeah. And those three methods of movement will, will do for any situation. They are perfectly good. There's no need to develop any more. But every child instinctively, whether any grown-up, asking them or telling them starts to skip do that
0: you know that skipping
1: and there is no seeming reason for that but what's interesting about that and this is this is just me sort of extrapolating this but if you think about that movement that sudden you know when you that movement that is actually making more of an impact than you would need normally and we know that impact on harder surfaces helps increase bone density in children's legs so actually that behavior that instinctive skipping is increasing the bone density of the limbs, which could potentially prevent breakage 30, 40 years later on. It can actually lower your risk of osteoporosis because you're doing that. And that's without a child ever thinking it. So one of the theories is, and the one that I subscribe to, is that play, those instinctive moments of play are an evolutionary imperative to create a stronger version of ourselves. Yeah. And even simply skipping is actually increasing bone density as is instinctive handstands and cartwheels and climbing and jumping and stretching that all children try and do until a grown-up stops them doing it
0: which is so amazing because i think skipping is such um it's a very joyful thing yes. to do a thing you really yeah. want to do and and, and i've even it's, it's so weird that we're having this conversation <laughs> because i think mm, i actually thought about these these things in my life yeah. like i want to walk on walls and yeah. i like skipping um yeah so you know i've often thought about how skipping I would walk and then sometimes skip, I remember yeah. as a child, because it felt less effortless.
1: Yeah, yeah, is but that, actually that, that, no, think no, no, about more it, effortless, yeah, sorry. but it's actually more effort, but you don't realise it. But yeah. it
0: feels, because you're yeah. jumping and you get that little bit yeah, of yeah. rest, Yeah, it feels effortless.
1: Yeah. And, and it's interesting so say it's joyful. And it makes you happy. Yeah, well, the, a lot of people say that's why children do it, but in a way, if you look at it, that's al- almost the symptom rather than the cause. Because if you subscribe to Yak-Panxepswork, which is that if you activate those systems in the brain, you produce a positive biochemical response like benzodiazepines. So when you skip, you're having fun because it feels amazing in your brain. You're actually getting stoned on, on playing. because I'm it's going to start skipping. Well, one. no, we know. I mean, yeah, obviously, once you reach 40, don't because it's bad for your knees. Yeah, right. So, but, Not uh, right there yet. No, no, I wasn't saying you were. No, oh no, God no,
0: I know. <laughs> no. But I'll skip downstairs. Um, yep. Join me if you want.
1: Yeah. So this could be the last ever broadcast you ever do, as is the you know, the hideous accident involving stairs and skipping down them. Yeah, okay.
0: Um, um, hopefully you don't skip. I'll skip. Yeah,
1: I won't. I, my yeah. knees are too bad. Um,
0: um, this is um oh this is really amazing. Thank you. I feel like I'm learning so much. And um, one of the things you said was about children needing time to physically heal. Yeah. How how is that possible?
1: Oh, well, um, we, there, there are lots of studies in children that have been through extreme trauma and one of the key things is that you have to remove the sources of the trauma. I know it's not rocket science but it's obvious. Um, but Children, in order to heal, that's the first thing, you, you can't continue those stress factors. Um, but also, what you're really looking at is if a child has been through those extreme situations, the, the emotional damage is mirrored by, by biochemical damage in the brain. So very, quite unpleasant chemicals producing you know, cortisol and, and other things that are produced through stress and anxiety. Um, and, and they're useful, I mean, you know if you're scared your, your, um, the chemicals in your brain will actually make you faster and stronger and they're there to get you away from danger. Mm. But you know, we don't know how old the human brain is, there's several figures put on it, but we know it's a couple hundred thousand years old. Um, but actually the limbic system is shared with all mammals, sometimes called the mammalian brain. So you're talking about a million year old part of the brain that's producing chemicals to get you away from predators. And so one of the dangers is that modern society gives fears and anxieties that we don't really have an adequate response to because our part of the brain is not set up for that, which is, which is difficult. Um, but also, because those chemicals are not nice chemicals and are considered toxic, um, then we need to heal the damage. And one of the ways we do that is actually to do the opposite, which is your play. Play, curiosity, and nurturing, because you're producing an opposite series of biochemicals, the feel-good stuff. Um, so actually it's a, it's a a lovely illustration of why play is one of the most powerful therapeutic disciplines. Mm. Um, so play therapy is in, incredibly successful for some children. And while we don't do um, therapeutic play, because what we focus on is play, any therapy to us is secondary. We just want children to be children again. We just yeah. want children to, to have those experiences that we all took for granted. Mm. So even if we're working with the most vulnerable children, we never go out there trying to heal those children. Mm. We, go in, we go in to say, let's just play. But we see the benefits. We see... You know, children who just, just children who just become children again. Um, I've got a lovely, um, a lovely photo of one of my male staff and he's got a child sat on his lap and they're both inside a cardboard box and this child is grinning from ear to ear and I've had people say, well, that's not very appropriate, is it, to have a, you know, a male worker with his arms around a young child? But actually, that was, that was the Sometimes most amazing need thing. That role model. Yeah, well, how
0: many children don't have that role model no, in their and lives? That
1: was the first time that child had smiled all day. And and it was it's a very we worked with that child for a while and it was a really powerful development to see that child able to talk to yeah. another grown up, and it was all to do with that nurturing system and that play system that we've talked about and of course curiosity, and it's it's a biochemical balancing act. The yeah. more of those positive pro social emotions you feel, the better off. And there's even evidence to suggest that many of the negative. Um, Chemicals are acidic in nature, yeah. so can cause physical burning of the synapses of the brain yeah. Whereas the positive pro emotions, the, the chemicals are less acidic or even anti-acids So you're even balancing the, the, the chemical nature of the brain. Yeah. So time to heal is about time, space But crucially it's about positive, um, positive relationships, positive responses from the adults in that world yeah. Um, So yeah,
0: I find that really interesting actually, you know, that play can help heal the brain because when I think about my own children, and obviously I know that they're younger at one and three, but a lot of it for them is role play. yeah. And I suppose yeah. it's an opportunity to recreate the experiences that you've had, yeah. but in a more positive way, in the way yeah. that you feel they should have been. yeah. Um, even down to like, you know, cooking. yeah. They love to be in the kitchen. Um, yeah. Obviously the pretend kitchen, not the real one. Um, mm-hmm. So I, could, I understand how that could sort of change... I suppose, the mindset with it as well.
1: Yeah. Well, don't get me started about imagination because that is my passion at the moment. I'm really into imagination. I'm, um, I've just got really excited by, by just the little, little things that I'd never connected before. So um, I used to do an activity on my training courses, like foraging. it's Mm -hmm. a wonderful one for children you send them off and say bring something interesting back there's no rules if they bring back a big stick brilliant If they bring back a lump of fox poo brilliant well they're (laughs) not so brilliant but there's no rules you can get whatever you want and it's just about exploring your outdoor world it's about how access to nature but then i've started getting children to pretend what they've got is something else Mm
0: -hmm. so that's not
1: a stick it's a wand for a fairy that's not a leaf it's an umbrella for pixies it doesn't matter what but what's really sort of made me think is that that is incredible what a child has just done. I, I reckon that could be potentially the most important thing a child ever does. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think anyone believes that animals are even capable of getting close to that. Mm-hmm. In terms of imagination, there, there is an element to where animals can just about start to move into that territory, but it never, it never goes to the, 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 the ability to go, that is not that, that is something else. And I don't think we ever think about that. I mean, I, I know that there's a lot of studies in, in monkeys and things like that, um, complex problem solving, uh, even right. you know, elements of, of being able to draw, uh, monkeys using sticks as, as weapons. Um, but I don't think any monkey would ever pick up that stick I don't and go, Expelliarmus. Yes. I, don't, I just don't think it happens because they don't have that, that next stage on, that next right. leap. But think about this, if, if you can imagine something is something that it's not, well, that's the beginning of the symbolic representation of other or the symbolic representation yes. of something else so if you want to learn to read for instance you need to know that that squiggle is a letter a it doesn't look like an a it doesn't mean anything it's a squiggle yet our brains for some reason are able to take that and say that means this noise this yes, sound yes. and i think it's that moment of imagination that underpins every single other human thing yes. all the higher stuff the stuff that animals don't do the you know complex maths well, even simple math, the number three doesn't look like three objects. No. Whereas if you can imagine something as something it's not, yeah. you can start to see that symbolic representation. And I think it's fascinating how we... Where Where are the sats for imagination? Yeah. Because if imagination is as important as I believe it is, as underpinning everything else that we want from children, including maths, writing, reading, you know, why are we not helping children to foster that imagination enough in, in early years and primary? Yeah. That should be a priority way more than maths because actually... That is what's inspiring children to have the mindset where they can symbolically represent stuff. So I'm getting quite excited. And
0: what's amazing really is that we're using all, well, children are using all this imagination in spite of school rather than than because of it. I think actually, yeah, it's um, a natural thing. My daughter (coughs) does do that. She imagines all things uh, are different things, and, and that's really come from her. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I feel sad about, I feel like I'm just reflecting on my childhood all, <laughs> all the time through this. Um, that I've thought about a lot, really. I think I got to age 14, and I just thought, "Where's my imagination gone? Yeah. You know, why am, why can I not imagine these magical stories as I did as a child?" Yeah. And I think maybe I would have liked to have been a writer, but and I just and I used to admire that um, some people could really hold on to the childhood imagination. Yeah. And that's how they could write book for, books for children. Yeah. And unfortunately some of us just lose it.
1: Yeah. I I work with a lot of adults who say, Oh, I'm not very imaginative, I'm not very creative and I will argue with them because I think if you're not imaginative or creative you're not human. It's there, can, it's just where they are. Exactly. And I think it's unfortunate it's adults that have Made us feel not creative in our lives that when we believe them, and in fact I was probably very similar in that up, you know up to I said I did all science subjects, so actually to go on an English degree with no English A level with no real, it, it was an eye opener to me. Yeah. But what was more of an eye opener was actually working with children mm. and realising that I can't draw, I can't paint, I can't uh, sing, I can't dance, I can't do much that's creative. And there I was building giant monsters out of cardboard boxes and stepping back with a bunch of 11-year-olds and going, whoa, that is awesome. And it, it hit me, you know, quite early on working with children. Yeah, I am creative. I'm yeah. incredibly creative. I'm just not creative and the narrow routes that a school, you know, I could actually do art once and then the, then the teacher would go, right, that's brilliant, now recreate it. Well, I couldn't. It, I'd done right. it once and yeah. that was it. And I never did well at art. I was always told I wasn't particularly artistic. <laughs> And yeah, but you should see my giant cardboard robots, they are... Yeah,
0: yeah. and monsters, and well, batman yeah. mobile, Batmobiles. Yes, yeah. yeah.
1: There you
0: go. Um, so, epigenetics,
1: oh dear. you talked
0: talk to me about that.
1: Yeah. What is that? Well, I hope I'm getting this right, because I've only just learned this, and it, but it's one of those, it's just blown my mind, this has. Um, and so, you know, if, if the way I, the way I, I believe it, it works is that if you think about genetics, um, genetics is the, the passing on of the genetic information from, from one generation to the other. So mm-hmm. if you're not familiar with the genetics, I just imagine that if, if a man and woman love each other very much, mm-hmm. they have a special hug and they <laughs> pass on. So your offspring's DNA will dictate your child's eye colour. It will dictate your child's height, perhaps, and things like that. But also you've, you've got to have the blueprint for a human body as well. So you've got the blueprint that a heart cell has to grow into a heart. Yeah. rather than into a lung, because otherwise you've got problems, haven't you? Yeah. So this genetic blueprint is passed on. And I have to be honest, it's not something that's interested me that much since mm-hmm. um, since since you know, since studying biology. Um, but epigenetics, if, if I've got this right, because I've only learned this recently, epigenetics is the bits of your DNA that are not hardwired. They're not set in stone. And what we believe now is that um, experiences can switch on and switch off certain sections of the DNA in a child. So for instance, one of the things is experiments in rats, for instance, is that if you have rats with a stressful existence, um, then they produce more cortisol, which is a stress hormone, but they also, they experience all those negative effects that we've talked about with children. But if you have a rat that comes from a really positive nurturing environment, and rat nurturing is licking their heads apparently, so um, so try that with your children. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that rat, not just, improves their own personal emotional well-being, but also alters the fundamental DNA um, so that when they have their own offspring, their own offspring have less of the the markers for high stress levels. So lower cortisol levels, less aggressive, um, better perspective for mental health if we're talking about children. So what we've actually got is when you work with children, um, you're not just affecting that child. And actually, many most you know, people who work with children know that you're actually creating the adult they're going to be. Mm-hmm. But you're not just doing that, you're actually affecting, on the genetic level, the unborn child of the children you're working with. And, and if I'm correct, I believe that the experiments in rats showed that it wasn't just one generation, it was two generations. So if you treat a child well, if you nurture them, if you make them feel loved and cared for, if you play with them, if you help them with their curiosity, that child, you have then altered their fundamental DNA, which they will pass on to their unborn children to mean that they will have lower stress levels. They will have a better outlook for mental health. They will be less aggressive. Yeah. And not only that, but you've helped their unborn grandchildren. And it's made me realise that I believe that if, if every government in the world invested in children, invested in children's well being, in focusing on that, nurturing, making every child feel loved and welcome and cared for, within two generations, we would change the human species we would have a less aggressive warlike species, we would have less antisocial behaviour, less crime, better mental health. And it would all start with everybody just deciding, we've got to invest in children. I'm not gonna sing children of the future at this point, because I can't <coughs> sing, and it's a cliche. But, um, so yeah, so that's how I understand epigenetics, and which to me is mind-blowing. I mean, it's really opened my eyes to think, you know, all those times I've worked with children, and I do meet children now that are adults that Amazing. I've worked with, and they come up to me and they talk to me and they go, oh yeah, it's great, I remember this, I remember that. I now realise that you know quite humbling that we've probably helped their children, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly on the on the inner city project, we you know, we work with children who, who you know are now proper grown ups with children of their own and are treating their children I know better than they were treated as children. Yeah. So it. changing, the changing yeah. the
0: future, aren't they? Yeah. So. Um, Which must make you feel really proud.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, and I'm just keen to pass that message on to as many people as possible. So yeah. Thank yeah. you.
0: So, when we're on the phone, you mentioned that you're doing some research. So, yeah. what are you, what are you researching, and how are you carrying it
1: out? Well, I say I'm, I'm doing research. It's it's really trying to broaden my knowledge of neuroscience because I, for the last four years, I've been I've been looking at stuff. I've been sort of cherry picking the stuff that means enough to me but there's huge gaps because it's not it's not my original training it's not something that you know that i know a lot about so i've got a um huge book to read over over christmas so um actually what yak bank's book um so um that's that's one of my one of my plans whether it'll happen i don't know but just to round out some of the knowledge um because what i don't want to be doing is is um, I don't know, people asking me questions because this is such powerful stuff. I don't want to undermine the message by suddenly having mm-hmm. to go, oh, no, I don't know what that is. So that's really what I'm doing. Um, but also I'm I'm looking at all those links that not everyone makes. You, know, you look at sort of two totally disparate theories and then you can you can draw the lines between them. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating when you do that. So some of the play theories of the 1990s are, you know, fascinating. There's um, a wonderful play theory uh, by the, the late Gordon Sturrock and the late Perry Elfs uh, called the play cycle, fascinating theory, really useful. It's taught on playwork training, but when you combine it with Yak Panksepp's work on where play comes from in the brain, it opens up whole new avenues of of how we understand children's behaviour and how we can support children. So I think that's something I'm keen to do: is make links between these disparate theories and see where it takes us.
0: Yeah, amazing. Thank you. So obviously, there's lots of teachers listening, and um, they'll be wondering, you know, what does this mean for me? So what are the most important things? that you think that teachers should know and implement?
1: One of the things I'm very keen to get across is that whole thing I mentioned earlier about that negative experiences, there's, sorry, there's no evidence to suggest that giving a child negative experiences will in any way toughen them up, will any in any way prepare them for negative experience. Almost all the evidence supports the fact that that if you give children positive experiences, it builds their resilience, their confidence, their mental health and emotional well-being so that they can then cope better with the negative experiences. Mm-hmm. So for instance, when a, when a school is, is using um, keeping a child in at break as a punishment because they've misbehaved in the first lesson, unfortunately that is setting up exactly the biochemical response to, to almost ensure negative behaviour in the second session. So whilst it you know it's as effective as a short-term deterrent, it's actually not really helping that child in the long term. It's also um,
0: not allowed them to kind of. Have that break, which maybe they needed, and maybe that's why they misbehaved. The well, place. yeah,
1: and you know, if we consider that the break and the um, the lunchtime in school is a, is a key emotional resetting time, yeah. because if children are finding school time and the formal learning anxiety making, they need that break. Well, if you take that away from a child, it is soul destroying, but could be damaging for their mental health. So, so I think that's one message: is that where possible, try to find positive ways, um, give children positive experiences. I, I work with a, a fantastic. Um, uh, early years worker called Sally Thomas, who was absolutely lovely, brilliant speaker. Sally Thomas said, I don't do activities for children. I give them experiences. And I that's something that's very important. I think the school, education, early years should be an experience for children. And it's those experiences that prepare a child for the rest of their life. Uh, and actually when you look at current neuroscience, brain growth is experiential. It's the experiences that children have that, that grow the brain. So it's I think it's what every child needs. And it's those positive experiences that prepare children even for negative experiences later on. Mm-hmm. It's not the let's toughen up our children by being mean to them. Yeah. Um, I feel
0: like I've had this conversation a lot recently actually about um you know the experiences that children have and yeah. and how easy is how easy it is for them to sort of relay those experiences afterwards or so, it's so much easier for a child to write about a certain history topic if they've experienced yeah. something like visiting somewhere, rather yeah. than just learning about it chalk and talk, or even if they've experienced it in the classroom. It's just not the same, is it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's something we need to refocus on, rather than it being about outcomes. I think it should be about experiences. Yeah. Um, so
0: to me, that tells me, you know, even though I think all oh, the focus, you know, is, is writing, actually, it just tells me that. When you learn something in terms of an experience, it's just so much deeper yeah. and so much yeah. stronger and, and it's something you remember.
1: Yeah. yeah, and that's what education should be about, isn't it? It should be about memorable moments and rather than about, I don't know, just knowledge for its own sake. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah.
0: Absolutely, thank you. Okay, so I've got some questions from uh, Lee, <laughs> who right. yeah, um, thanks, Lee. works with me at Glassman's <laughs> Equest. he sent loads through. <laughs> So right, um, he says, how do you ensure that play is inclusive for children who are on the spectrum or have Asperger's?
1: Um, That's an interesting question that I cannot answer in a short space of time entirely, but we do a lot of work with um, special schools, we do a lot of work with autistic children's groups, and the key is actually not to look at the condition, but to look at the symptoms. And actually, every child is completely different. Every child, regardless of whether they're on the autistic spectrum, regardless of of, whatever particular issue or difficulty they may have. And so you kind of have to say, well, how does that manifest? What can I do to work around that? Um, And one of the key ways that we're inclusive is actually to remove the failure thresholds from our sessions. And by that, I mean, you know, a lot of life is about... um, you have to achieve a certain level and whether that's an overt level where, you know, the PE teacher said, right, we're all going to jump this high or even, you know, a slightly less obvious one where, where the teacher says, hey, kids, let's all make this. Mm. That is still a failure threshold because you're looking at that going, I've got to achieve that standard. Um, so one, one of the things we do with our uh, inclusive groups is, is just to actually remove those and actually see what the children do within that because then they're working at their level and they're accessing the resources at their level and nobody's telling them that what they're doing is wrong. Mm. So that is, that is the cornerstone of inclusion is actually to focus much more on the process of, of the, that moment than, than worrying about an end product. Um, specifically, I work with autistic children's groups um, is, uh, there's all sorts of different things that we do. We we try and give um, so freedom of expression, but then but the, when we limit it for those children that would struggle with too much freedom, um, we do all sorts of different things. But with tiny incremental amounts of imagination, mm-hmm. um, and and we just we just try stuff and see what works. But it's actually based on the individual child, not based on this child's on the autistic spectrum, because you can't make judgments unless you've met that child. So,
0: so. you say you try things and see what works, and and. I think that's a great tip but what kind of things would you try?
1: Um, the, the, we worked with a group recently which was um, a group of adult aged men <laughs> with, um, but with a mental capacity age of much lower, um, so four year old potentially. Um, so many of my staff uh, were, were nervous about that because mm-hmm. with an early years background it is a bit daunting to mm-hmm. realise you're working with grown-ups. Yeah. Um, But I just said, it's exactly the same as any other children's session, you know, that you take away an end product, you make it inclusive by not putting people under pressure. And then you actually see what works and you subtly tailor what you're doing to work. So we ended up with that group dressed up as superheroes, running around being superheroes. And once that happened, all of my staff were fully confident because now that was something they knew. So it is, it is just simple play. At whatever level the child is able to access, but never, never being set up as this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to mm-hmm. achieve. Um, and if that child wants to sit in a cardboard box, we're not going to say that's the wrong way to use the cardboard box. If that child wants to destroy the cardboard box and jump on it, that's not a wrong way either. We will support their way of in, of interacting with it. So one of our um, family respite days that we did, um, we'd got these. Um, tube things, the collapsible tubes, mm-hmm. the ones that twang up into your face every so often. Um, and one child um, cl- crawled into one and just said, I'm a caterpillar. Mm-hmm. Well, That's fine, you'd be a caterpillar. But then he started to move in it and every so often something would disappear. So he was a caterpillar eating the other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So all we did there, we recognised that he was leading his own play. Mm-hmm. We didn't need to do much, but we thought, wouldn't it be nice if we gave him more stuff to eat? So we laid stuff out like balls and... Yeah toys and he spent probably a good 40 minutes just going around the entire hall chomping on stuff so he'd chosen that we supported it so it's that kind of thing
0: yeah Um, seeing what they're interested in just going back to um talking about the adults who um you know had the learned ability of a four-year-old did you find that they were interested in the same things that a four-year-old might be or were they interested in different things because they're an adult and so you kind of have to do a merge between the two.
1: And in this particular case, it was all of the same stuff that we would do for children. Yeah. Um, it was sensory play. But then th- this is the problem. Everyone looks at things like sensory play, like getting your hands dirty and getting messy, and thinks, oh, yeah, early years, under fives. It's not. You know, if I work with a group of 15-year-olds, you can imagine the, the joy they'd have oh, you know, yeah. play, playing beans or spaghetti where you're blindfolded and you have to try and guess the difference between the beans or spaghetti. And when that's too easy, you do it with your elbows and your toes and stuff. So I think a lot of these play types that we that we use... Are not restricted to early years, and even if those had been adults, because obviously we, we do play with adults because our parent sessions, mm-hmm. and actually if you come on any of my training, we always play. You'll see the grown-ups, regardless of their ability level, getting as much fun out of the play as any child would. And I never cater, I never tailor my stuff for adults. So today on the maths session, we've um, pretended to be explorers. We've stomped around the, the woods. We've um, crossed a big Amazon river by making bridges and mm-hmm. stepping stones. And then we've thrown multiple balls at each other. I know it doesn't sound like a maths session, but I promise you it was. Yeah. And at no point have I changed that to, to make it suitable for adults. Mm. But you look, I've got video, and you look at the joy on the adult learners' faces. They're experiencing the same benzodiazepine response as a childhood. Yeah. So yeah, I And I guess
0: don't... sometimes they just take something slightly different away from...
1: Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Well, they'll still see, be seeing what's be beneath it. They'll be yeah. seeing the, the thought process that's going on. But actually, in that moment, no, they're, they're throwing a ball at somebody else's face. In slow, we've got a slow motion video of it. Yeah. You see that. You see their eyes wide, you see their, their grins come on. Oh, 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 and they're throwing balls at each other. Yeah. That's exactly how a child would be. There's no difference. And I think, as a society, if we played more, I think our adult mental health would be improved, mm-hmm. because I think it is a key balancing factor for our brains. And uh, yeah. Unfortunately as a play specialist I should play more than I do, but you know, because 'cause I'm so busy. You're working um, so much yeah, You're teaching I am. everyone else about play. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: thank you. And um, when we we're on the phone, you told me a story about being a, a superhero and um how it broke through for a child. Do you want to tell me that story?
1: Yeah, well it's happened to myself and, and members of my staff actually as well. Mm-hmm. So um but actually it it's not an uncommon occurrence. What we if we work with children that have been through a lot of trauma, children that may be selectively mute or um children who speak very little, or are just genuinely scared of adults. Um, Several times now, either myself or my team, have had children who can sit next to us and talk to us simply because we're dressed as a superhero. Mm -hmm. And it only works if they're a superhero and we're a superhero. It's one of the things I'm keen to get across to adults who work with children, is that it doesn't work if you're stood around arms folded, going, oh, look at those children, aren't they doing, aren't they cute? You've got to be on the floor, engaged in that process, and only then will they actually be able to open up to you yeah. and i think the key is they've
0: got to trust you haven't
1: they yeah i think they need to see you as a different sort of grown up mm. um you know and we've seen i've seen speakers in, in today as well of teachers who i think oh they're amazing because they don't come across as your ordinary grown up they come across as just something a bit weird and wonderful and i think that's a really powerful thing i don't think people realize quite how powerful it is the the slightly unusual silliness of, of the most enthusiastic teachers where they are just that little bit I don't know I don't know what the word would be without being you know not unpolitically correct but but they're brilliant because yeah. children looking at them going oh you know she's not like other grown-ups I think mean, that's one of those powerful things you never be for a child is to not be like other grown-ups yeah. so yeah yeah
0: something that they feel like they can they can trust and latch onto. I guess yeah yeah and yeah. yeah. um, so a lot of the playing in schools happens at lunchtime. Yeah. Um, do you think that we should be training lunchtime staff to to play with the children?
1: Um, yeah, uh, or more crucially, to support play because it doesn't always involve playing with the children it it involves just as much actually facilitating play and then stepping back and letting children get on with it Mm -hmm. Um, but no absolutely I think it's a crucial time in the day I think if you get lunchtime right it has a massive knock-on effect on the whole rest of the school day Mm -hmm. and there are several schools that realize this and I do get invited to come in and train lunchtime supervisors um, for as as many as four sessions Um, and you almost always see a, a, a a change in behaviour, a change in just just general enthusiasm. Um, but if you know, if you accept like I do that play is one of the most important fundamental developmental processes in a child's life, if those small amounts of lunchtime and break could be it for some children. You know, yeah. if they're going home and and the consoles are coming on, the telly's coming on, kept in one room or staying indoors, mm-hmm. um, where else are they going to get outdoor play? So I do do a lot of training for schools for the lunchtime staff it's always hilarious we love doing it um quite often lunchtime staff are 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 the least confident members of staff um Mm -hmm. you know it's a very low paid job very little prestige so the first bit is to make sure they understand how important they are and that's a bit of an eye-opener because they understand that actually potentially for some children it's the most important time of the day um, and can make all the difference in the world it it Um, really
0: is important because i remember being in year three and, and I didn't have a clue what was going on at school because no. I was constantly playing in my head. Yeah, I was just playing at home in my head, and I never listened to anything. When I got to Year Five, I kind of woke up. Yeah, but um, I, it was just all I wanted to do was play. Yeah, Playing was so important. And yeah. I didn't want to
1: sit in class. No, because you're being rewarded with Benz and Aspie and every time you play, so why would you want to do anything else? Yeah. I know, it is a challenge and I think finding that balance is is, a, is something that I, I'm quite interested in in schools. Um, but say if lunchtime gives children that oasis of play, that a moment of re- emotional resetting, that wonderful you know, biochemical response, then actually they're more set up for learning as well. So. So what, you
0: know, what is one of the tips that you give to lunchtime supervisors?
1: Um, knowing when to step in and when to step back, um, when to intervene, when to, when to subtly steer play towards more positive expression of play, um, to avoid the shouting at children, to avoid the, mm. um, the negative experiences of lunchtime. I mean there are lunchtimes I've witnessed where it's 45 minutes of adults telling children what not to do. Mm. So the key bit of advice is actually that, that, you know, that moment of assessing what children are doing. And realizing you know if i intervene now am i making play better for those children and if the answer is yes then intervene and and suggest something or even join in if those children want you to join in but actually if you're going to be stopping something that's already perfectly good then you need to go actually no i'm, I'm going to step back here that, yeah. uh, so i think that's very key but also recognize how important players yeah it's not frivolous it's the hardest bit about my job everything i do looks silly and nobody looks at the stuff I do, even on the workshops I've just done, yeah, you know, people jumping over a pretend river of chocolate. Nobody's looking at that going, Whoa, look at the neuroscience uh, sorry, look at the neurological development on those adults. They don't ever do it because because people don't make those links and it just looks silly. So lunchtime supervisors naturally feel the least important people in the school. So one of the first things I do is say, No, that's the opposite of the case. Yeah. You're doing more for that child's brain development than perhaps is happening sometimes in the lessons. Yeah then children need that brain development in order to be able to concentrate in the lessons yeah. but it's the the brain growth that experiential brain growth that's happening more through play than anything else that children do
0: and especially there's so much more interested in that as well Oh well, yeah you know yeah. it's just it fires on all cylinders doesn't it yeah um okay how could we get more of this covered in in teacher training um because i'm sure that there are so many people listening to this now and thinking this is news to me
1: um it, it is a challenge because, because it's always seen as as a kind of a, a poor cousin to yeah. learning when actually we know, we know the play is learning um, and it underpins every age of child, every age of development from brain development through to you know all the emotional development. Um, so I do guest lectures on teach mm-hmm. training courses, uh, on uh, initial teach training. Um, I tend to do a half hour a day, uh, just a real whirlwind intensive course of, yeah, you've learned all your other stuff, but look, this is what happens in the brain of a child. When they play, this is what's happening in the brain of a child. When they don't play, yeah. and just get some of the basics across to them, so that at least then new, new teachers have got that uh, that kind of the knowledge underpinning it, so they can make that choice and, and try and find that balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there are other people doing some really interesting play training out there, but no, I don't think it's happening enough. I have to say. And, and when I do work with the groups of teach, on teach training courses, a lot of it does come as a surprise to them. I think, I think we've always known how important play is. I just think we, we just don't quite, uh, I don't, we don't quite realize just how important, mm-hmm. how how essential it is for children. Um, so yeah, so I'm always always keen to talk to you know conferences. full of teachers like today. I do head teachers conferences. Um, I met some amazing head teachers uh, you know at a conference recently. Really passionate about it, getting play throughout the whole school day, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and just do everything I can. So to, to get the message out there, you know, parents, teachers, children, yeah. had teachers, early years workers.
0: I feel like I've um, I've been learning so much more about it recently. And uh, I, w- I was talking about it yesterday to uh, some teachers who came to our event. And I think because I came from a secondary school background and then I was in key stage two, um, it's not that I was against it, but I didn't really think too much about it. No. But now I've got a three-year-old and she's going into school. And to be honest, her school is... is quite play-based and they yeah. do uh, forest school and things I and mean, they're always outside and things. Yeah. I now understand how important it is and I, I can see how much you learn through playing and, and in some ways I'm a bit worried that, you know, she might get two years down the line and she might have to sit at a desk all the time.
1: Yeah, it's, it, I. that is a a really hard transition. Yeah, you know, we worry about the transition to high school, but actually your sort of playful EYFS curriculum... Um, and then suddenly you hit year one, and you're expected to suddenly sit still. Mm. And th- there are th- there's all sorts of arguments for and against. I know there are teachers who try and make reception more structured to prepare children for sitting still, listening, sitting at desks. But when you look at the brain, that isn't how brains are designed to learn anyway. When you look at things like the characteristics of effective learning, sitting still, listening to grown-ups is not even mentioned. So actually, it's again, it's back to that giving children a negative experience to prepare them for a negative experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, what you really need to be doing is make your reception even more playful, even more curiosity-making and exciting and nurturing and, and awe-inspiring, awe mm. and wonder, the two you know, new things yeah, from yeah. the EYFS. That's, that is what they need, because then when they get to a more formal structured learning, mm. they might still be able to pull out the really interesting bits of information from that and still keep themselves passionate. Whereas if you've already taken that passion away... You might've prepared them for sitting still listening, but you've not prepared them for learning and you've not prepared them for life.
0: They're just not more bored, aren't they? And, and yeah. hopefully, I'd like to think that, that we can all move towards maybe less. Yeah. <laughs> less sitting behind desks and, and more, you know, being yeah. active and, and experiencing the world. Um, okay, so I'm gonna ask you some questions that I ask everybody. Right. So, if you could wave a magic wand, how yeah. would you solve the life-work balance problem for teachers?
1: As somebody who has, has not quite got a handle on that myself because I run my own company I, I do everything you know even though I've got other team members I, I do a lot myself um, I think it would have to be a genuinely magic wand and I think it would have to transport us to an island um, somewhere uh, away from everywhere mm-hmm. um, I was very lucky recently I, my, um, my wife and I got to stay in a treehouse and no kids no dogs no cats just quiet in the woods and it was amazing it was the best, just the best. It was only one evening, but it was just incredible. Yeah. And I actually felt relaxed for the first time in months. So I think we need to set that up for all teachers. I think we ought to have an island uh, yeah. in a woods somewhere, like a wooded island with little tree houses, uh, with hot and cold running uh, gin, possibly red wine. Yeah. And, um, and just, <laughs> just no kids anywhere for miles around. No, nothing except for just calm, chill out. And I think that should be the teacher's resort. Once a year, we all get to stay there. So forget the teacher's
0: podcast, the teacher's resort. Yeah,
1: that should be your next next line of business. Yeah, Yeah.
0: okay, right. Well, I'll look into it, definitely look into it. Um, Do you think you can help me get government funding?
1: Well, yeah. Yeah, maybe not for the gin bit, (laughs) but for the, uh, yeah. Well, you know.
0: (laughs) We'll sponsor the gin.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that answer. Um, Vashti Hardy gave me um, a really cool answer as well. Most teachers say time, and to be honest, I'm not boring as well. But not Mm. you, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So who was your favourite teacher at school and why?
1: That is a difficult question. Um, I, my, one of my friends has recently turned 50 and he sent me a picture of our high school, first high school teachers, the mm-hmm. teacher's picture. And I remember looking at their teachers and I remember Mr Spencer, who was a chemistry teacher. I remember spotting, I didn't, I didn't remember a lot of the faces, but I remember him and he uh, inspired a love of... Chemistry in me, which lasted until A level, when I had a, a very dull teacher, um, and he would sing stuff about chemis- chemicals. He would he would do the can can across the desk, oh, wow. singing. You always get the metal at the cathode because he knew that was going to come up on O levels because you have to know which. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But Way he'd do it. He'd do it in a it. like you know clapping and doing all this, and he would explode things. He would let us set fire to things, and that to me was amazing. So yeah. I loved him. But then I remember looking at this picture. And i'm just scanning across and then i saw a teacher and my heart just stopped and a cold flush went over me because i really realized there was this just this horrible horrible man there that i'd totally blotted out out of my childhood i only had him for three years um i can't remember his name i, I can't even remember what he was called but he was a history teacher and he was just evil and and i and even like 49 years old i'm looking at a picture of a man that i've not seen for 30 whatever years mm-hmm. and i'm looking at him and going literally chills because he was just so evil this wow. man
0: must have been really awful
1: oh he, he would he would just you know if you he'd rip up your homework in front of you and and put it in the bin oh,
0: right.
1: and then or you'd hand it and just throw it straight in the bin and go, do it again and well
0: without do, I even looking at
1: it yeah yeah and you'd spent ages doing it and uh yeah no i mean i was quite resilient in terms of you know adults tried. Tried their best to be to be mean to me and I was reasonably resilient, but he, he brought me to tears. He was the only teacher who broke me down to tears. And I know my my behaviour wasn't great, but actually it was it wasn't terrible. No. Um, and he yeah, he was just evil. So that's just
0: awful. Yeah. Um, so where do you think education needs to go in the next ten years? <sighs> <laughs> Everyone always makes that noise at the beginning of that question. Sorry.
1: Um, but it is a big question. Without being controversial, I think we need to invest more in early years. I think, I think there's too much disparity. You know, if you've got school leavers entering early years as a profession on minimum wage, mm. you wouldn't dream of paying a teacher that Completely amount of money. Right. And I think, and t- it's, it's, you know, everyone's worried about the word gap. Everyone's worried about the, the decrease in children's abilities and the, you know, the neuromotor maturity. Children not moving enough in childhood. And I think that more now than ever, you need to get the foundations right. And I think, you know, an early years, an early years worker should be paid the same as a primary school, if not secondary school, teacher, because then you you get the right people. And to... have
0: had all the training, like yeah. you are talking about now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's some amazing early years workers out there, and they do it for no other reason but that they love working with children because mm. they don't get any rewards. There's no prestige. There's no. The pay is dreadful, and those are amazing people. But there's not enough. And I think if if we invested in it, I think it would transform primary and secondary because Mm. I think you'd see the knock-on effect.
0: They had the right foundation.
1: Yeah, so that's my, I don't know how controversial that is, but I believe, yeah, invest in early years and primary way, way more than we do currently.
0: It's interesting you say that because um, obviously I know early years spans uh, wider than this, but actually there are schools in Halifax where... um, even before you could... Put, uh, so not all, all children can get the 30 hours can the yeah, anniversary. Yeah. Yeah, some, right. some children only get 15. But even before um, the government out- offered that to more children, yeah. schools were funding that themselves. Yeah. Um, but certainly in Calderdale, not all schools, so that they could input more into those children's lives so that they were yeah. more prepared when they got into the reception yeah. class. Yeah. Um, so that's how important it is.
1: Yeah. But then 30-hour funding has been putting nurseries out of business because, because the amount they get is not enough to pay for the staff to actually provide that right, service. Yeah. It's been horrendous for some nurseries. So it is, it's, a, it's a difficult one. And I just think whatever government we have has to take responsibility and say there is only one way to help children become the positive adults in society that we need, and that is to invest as early as possible. A, a majority of the brain growth of a child happens before they're two.
0: yeah.
1: If you've had an up to two where you've had a deficit of movement, a deficit of nurturing, a deficit of, of communication, of course there's going to be gaps. Yeah. So we need early-years workers in baby rooms to be as skilled up and as clued up as possible, paid at what they deserve to be paid. And we need parents educated. We need everybody to understand that from the minute that baby is born, they are on a, a massive brain growth journey. That's ha- not
0: a lot of time to get it
1: right. Well, no. I mean, you, there's all sorts of things you can do in later life, but actually that's the key. It's early years and early primary where we really need to invest because, you know, we're, we're struggling. I genuinely think that the children now that are getting to school, leaving age, haven't always had enough of the things that they need in that early early age. And um, I think
0: at that age, because... Because they don't have to go to school at that age, they can have such a varied experience yeah. um, between not two. And I know that I know that all children progress differently, yeah. and, and you yeah. know it might be that a child is in a fantastic adv- environment, and maybe they're not showing at that point the same yeah, yeah. kind of skills as another child. But I also think that your environment does have a lot to do with it, yeah. and and, yeah. and the difference you can see between children of the same age. Oh, yeah. in that I mean. I'm like in that now. My my daughter's 16 months. It's just, it is amazing. Yeah. To sort of, and I suppose that bears
1: saying is that you know, despite what I've just said, there is some amazing childcare out there. I work with some of the best nurseries just in the country, and you you feel the atmosphere as you go in. You've got staff still still paid very poorly, but just the enthusiasm, the the passion for what they're doing, the silliness, the running around with. You know, cardboard boxes on their head, singing "Oh, the Grand Old Duke of York," and watching the joy in those children's faces, and that's all done on, like I said, minimum wage with no perks because snot isn't a perk. And just think how much better. Gotcha. Well, yeah. Oh, it's when it's off the chin. Oh um, no, when, no, how don't How do they not feel it going over their lips, these children? <laughs> I know. I know. It's just gross, but how much better would it be if we fostered those people? Because they leave sometimes as well, because they've got to support a family themselves. Yeah. And, you know, if we yeah, could keep... Yeah,
0: sometimes it's a job they can only do for so Yeah, long.
1: if we could keep those wonderful people in New Year's, but also bring more people in, people who are, you know, genuinely enthusiastic and passionate, mm. we would transform humanity. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> wow. Um, okay, so who's your inspiration within education?
1: Well, I hadn't thought of that one, um, so I, I, I don't know... Um, Oh, I haven't really got time to come back at you on that. Have I? That's um, okay. No, it is
0: a hard question. My
1: mum. My my mum is uh, was a teacher, yeah. a history teacher. And um, there's Facebook pages about the old school that she went to, the school's closed down, but it's people getting back on her. And what do the, all the students use for for those Facebook pages? They, they, they moan about the old teachers, don't they? So they're like, yeah. oh, do you know, remember Mrs. So-and-so, she caught me smoking around the bike, said she gave me a right, you know. Yeah. And they're always insulting to these teachers. And whenever my mum's name came up, nothing but positive. Not one person went, oh, that, that so-and-so, she was, she was horrible. They all said, oh, I wonder what happened to her. She's really lovely. And unfortunately, my mum my, unfortunately, my died of cancer quite younger than she should have done. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, she's, she's the inspiration as a teacher. Um, and she could always see the best in people as well. And she was an incredible woman. And I, I have to try and make myself see the best in people, whereas she naturally could look at people and see through the behaviour, through the attitude, through whatever was going on. And isn't that the most wonderful skill for a teacher? Because quite often the behaviour that you're seeing in that child is not aimed at you. It's not even because of you. It's because of what's happened that's in the, the rest of that child's life. And you're the only person they can vent to. Mm-hmm. And she was amazing at being able to see that and work, see what the child could become and actually work with that. So, I'm yeah, glad so, yeah. you weren't
0: prepared for an answer because that was a lovely
1: answer. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and OK, last question then. What did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Teacher. Isn't that bizarre? <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah. And you're not a teacher now. Normally, people who say
1: yeah. that are a teacher now. Well, do you know what? Um, I, I am a teacher. And what's are, interesting yeah. is when children, when I work with children, and um, quite often if, if, they've, if there's some behavioural issues, they'll always get dragged to me because because I teach positive behaviour, then people think I'm an expert. So some poor child will get dragged to me. And one of the first things that I say when they look scared of me, I say, no, don't worry, I'm not a teacher. And then they look at me and I go, well, actually, I am a teacher, but I teach teachers. And that blows their mind because they didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, yeah, so they're, that they're starting to look at me differently by then and go, hang on, this this is a guy who teaches teachers. So it is quite interesting that I, yeah. I use that. Why do they not
0: know everything? Yeah. Why did they not live at
1: school? No, but they, yeah, that's it. So um, so yeah, I mean, I, I teach all the time now, uh, but yeah. my role with children is not a teaching role. It's a supporting and, and playing role, which is brilliant. And I love it. Yeah.
0: Well, so. thank you so much. I... I'm just thinking, how am I going to process all this new knowledge that I now have? Um, It's been amazing, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Epigenetics. Fascinating stuff. I, for one, am so grateful for all the knowledge I am gaining through interviewing amazing guests on the podcast. This is not necessarily the stuff we'd normally know, But we are finding out, not on a deep level, but enough to make a difference and make us all not only better teachers, but better human beings. And I love that. You'll find everything that Ben talked about in the show notes. Let me know who else you'd like to hear from and what you'd like me to ask them. If it's the first time you're listening to The Teacher's Podcast, check out our other episodes for some more great listens. We've been securing some more fantastic guests for you. And if you want to request that someone is on the podcast, And you can let us know in the Facebook group called The Teachers Podcast Community. This episode is now live on YouTube, so don't forget to subscribe to our channel. And did you love this episode? Please, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. See you next week. Thank you for listening. The Teachers Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets, a provider of high quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk